0: So let me start by uh, giving you a little bit of background uh, on the topic of my presentation. Um, I think it's fair to say that there's uh, a growing concern over the negative impact of on of misinformation on uh, the democratic process. Uh, I think it's fair to say that we can find traces of that concern both uh, within uh, philosophy uh, and also outside philosophy, just if uh, just in the media. So let me just give two examples of uh, what I have in mind when uh, I'm thinking of a great concern within philosophy. So in 2017, a researcher called Neil Levy uh, published an article titled The Bad News About Fake News uh, in which he basically argued that uh, misinformation um, is effective, that uh, it has the power to kind of influence the belief formation process of democratic citizens. And I think that uh, closer uh, to you, um, Regina Rini, who's uh, now uh, working at uh, York University, uh, I think that a part of her work at least um, should be conceived of as focusing on uh, the relationship between social media and democracy. So I think that this concern generally gives rise uh, to a debate about how liberal democracies should tackle the problem posed by misinformation and more precisely fake news. And I think that there's so far um, been kind of three categories of remedies against misinformation that, that have been proposed. So the first category include um, what I call change in individual cognitive habits. So some people argue that um, social media users kind of bear the responsibility uh, of developing cognitive habits that gonna lead them to be immune from Um, the bad information, the the information of poor quality to which they may be exposed. Some virtue epistemologists, if you're interested for instance in virtue epistemology, uh, have argued that um, social media users should develop kind of intellectual virtues that will protect them against misinformation, even that we should teach such virtues to um, university students. Now the second category of, of remedies include focus on what I call algorithmic design I think that it's fair to say that it's generally the kind of remedy um, that is privileged by social networks themselves so if you ask Facebook basically what should we do about misinformation uh, they're probably going to respond to something like we're on it uh, we have the right people we have a team of people working on that we're going to develop algorithm that's going to minimize the likelihood that um, our users are going to be exposed to bad uh, information. And I think that the, the third kind of broad category of remedies against misinformation include uh, what I call legal prohibitions. And generally, legal prohibitions tend to be enacted by Western liberal democracies that are not, not so convinced that, let's say, kind of the inner innovation of social networks is going to be sufficient uh, to remedy the problem, that maybe uh, we need to kind of provide uh, social network with, with, with a strong incentive um, to uh, to take the problem of fake news seriously. And um, let me say a little bit more about what kind of legal prohibitions I, I have in mind. So some of you may be aware uh, that uh, last year, uh, very recently actually, last fall, the Macron government in France uh, enacted a law against fake news uh, that uh, is named The Loi Contre la Manipulation de l'Information. Uh, So this law has been adopted by um, the Assemblée Nationale, so the Legislative Chamber in France, um, very recently on November 20th, 2018. It was in fact ratified by the Constitutional Council. That's kind of the last step on December 20th. Um, And I don't want to dig too deep into uh, kind of the the specific features of this law, but uh, what I want to, to do is to draw attention uh, draw your attention to its main feature. So this law basically works by impairing Fran- empowering sorry, French judges uh, to order removal of fake news from websites, including social media, uh, within um, 48 hours. Now, the legislative process surrounding the enactment of that law has been extremely um, contra- controversial. I mean, the enactment of the law has been extremely controversial. Uh, one kind of important sign of this is that the French Senate has refused to ratify the law, um, and it has refused to ratify the law, uh, partly because it considers that this law is incompatible with our freedom to communicate. So basically, the objection is that the Macron law that uh, has now been implemented uh, threatens our our individual right to freedom of expression. So I think that this um, gives rise, this creates a kind of uh, normative question, a traditional normative question Uh, interesting for political theorists uh, or political philosophers. And I think that this question is the following, should liberal democratic states coerce social media into removing fake news from their platform? And uh, what I want to do today is quite simply to kind of contribute to the reflection on this question by uh, doing three things, essentially. So first, uh, I want to build an argument in favor of the legal prohibition of fake news. I think that as soon as a government proposes to restrict a kind of speech. It's always good for philosophers or political theorists to wonder, uh, why should we uh, enact this law? What do we lose if we don't? What do we gain if we do? So I'm going to do that in um, the um, the first part of the presentation by drawing insights from uh, social epistemology. Um, and then in the second part of, of, the, of the presentation, I want you to consider what I consider to be the central objection, or at least a very strong objection, a, an important objection against uh, the legal prohibition of uh, fake news. And then finally, in the third part of the presentation, I'd like to sketch uh, a response to this objection uh, by considering the relationship between expression or speech uh, and autonomy. All right. Um, so let me start with uh, the first part of the presentation, with um, the, the part of the presentation in which I uh, build an argument in favor of the legal prohibition of fake news. Uh, but before I, I kind of uh, present the main steps of the argument that I intend to build, I think that it's important uh, to kind of specify what I mean by fake news. It's a slippery concept. So I'd like to kind of specify what's the the definition on which I rely in this paper. It's not a definition that I've come up with. Um, I think that philosophers have been working on the concept of Hiknus in the last two years and I've done like fairly good work. Um, And what I'm gonna do is that I'm gonna borrow um, a definition that I quite like that's been proposed last year by a social epistemologist called Axel Gelfert, who's working in Berlin uh, in a 2018 paper uh, simply titled fake news, a definition. Uh, sorry, there's a glitch on uh, this slide. I've, I've double checked the slides before, uh, before the Skype call um, and uh, there shouldn't be any more glitch on the rest of the PowerPoint presentation. So Genfeld defines fake news as the deliberate presentation of false or misleading claims as news, where the claims are misleading by design. And then he goes on to kind of clarify what he means by this expression by design. By arguing that fake news either aims to instill falsehoods in its target audience, uh, for example, in order to discredit a political opponent, I think that uh, to give to give a few examples, we can think uh, of the kind of uh, fake news article that um, you have probably encountered during the 2016 American presidential election. So, Pizzagate, for instance, fake news that are trying to uh, let's say, modify inside the public to form false beliefs about specific political candidate, uh, hoping that uh, these false beliefs are gonna modify, are gonna modify themselves, the behavior of um, of members of the citizenry. So that's kind of one kind of fake news politically motivated, uh, but um, Gelfeldt also underlines that content can be considered as fake news um, also, because uh, the way it is deliberately op- operated is objectively likely to mislead its target audience, its real goal being, for example, the generation of clickbait through sensation- sensational claims that attract an online audience. Um, so I think that that those two categories of fake news are kind of the main categories of, of fake news. Those are the ones at least that I have in mind uh, when, when writing this paper, so politically motivated ones, uh, and ones that are basically um, <clears throat> inciting the public just to click on a link. The goal being uh, a commercial. Uh, and it's important that in order to specify that, in order to qualify a fake news, uh, then the articles to which um, you know someone is trying to direct internet traffic contain some false of uh, misleading claims. And another another thing I want to stress is that, according to Gelfert's definition, at least this whole process is deliberate, so there's an intentionality requirement. So I think this is a fairly uh, good definition of fake news. Um, I have a slight worry about it. Gelfet seems quite confident that um, political satire, so articles that you find on websites like The Onion, are not gonna uh, be included by this definition. Um, I'm not so convinced that, that um, that it won't. I'm happy to go back to this question uh, during the Q&A, but just know uh, for the sake of the discussion uh, that the kind of main legal prohibition against uh, misinformation that I have in mind um, when, when uh, presenting and, and writing this article is the French one, and the French one contains an explicit clause that exclude political satire. Okay, so that's for the, uh, the kind of conceptual clarification of a term on which I'm gonna rely quite frequently today, fake news. Uh, Now, let me present the the argument proper. So the argument starts by um, uh, consideration about what I call mutual epistemic dependence. This has been a fairly important theme uh, in social epistemology um, in the last decade. So the the basic idea is that individuals have a basic interest in relying on each other's testimony to gain knowledge uh, that allows them to fulfill their individual needs and, and aspirations. So if you think about it, Uh, most of the knowledge that we possess has been acquired through um, testimony. It's not just that we need testimony to kind of construct a a theoretical understanding of the way the world is, it's also that we constantly rely on our conception of uh, how the world is uh, to uh, act. So um, we rely on testimony basically to decide how um, how we're going to behave uh, in order to fulfill the different goals that we set for ourselves. So um, I think that there are many quotes in the literature that kind of illustrate this idea. One that I that I like, uh, that I quite like, is a quote by Shauna uh in a 2014 book called Speech Matters. So Shifrin writes, given our mutual epistemic limitations and the complexity of the environment in which we find ourselves, we depend upon one another's beliefs, knowledge, and reactions to our beliefs, Uh, to construct a reliable picture of our world so that we can navigate through it and understand who we are and where we are situated. So that's kind of the basis of the argument. But from there, I move to uh, a consideration about uh, the role of expert and more precisely of expert testimony in what I've called mutual epistemic dependence. That's also been a very important uh, team. Um, of social epistemology during the last decades. So I think that experts play a central role in epistemic dependence. I think that the existence of sincere and reliable expert relieves us from a substantial epistemic burden. And more precisely, I think we can say that experts provide us with information um, that we're rationally warranted in not acquiring or verifying ourselves. So just to give an example of that, the whole point of kind of having physicians, uh, doctors, is that uh, by going to see a doctor that uh, has the knowledge necessary to kind of diagnose the condition from which you may suffer, you kind of relieve yourself from having to diagnose your own condition. That would be kind of time consuming and costly because you would have to acquire the expertise necessary um, to do that reliably. And then of course, if you kind of doubt a diagnostic, you can decide to go see another physician and ask him or her um, for For uh, his or her opinion, uh, but that, this of course doesn't really count as as escaping mutual epistemic dependency. it's just another way uh, of of relying on testimony. so in, in a nutshell, if he, if I had to express this thought, I would say that experts contribute to what we can call the social division um, of epistemic labor. So again, this is kind um, those are kind of the fundamental considerations be, behind the argument. Then, of course, eventually I move to uh, considerations that uh, more directly concern uh, the relationship between journalism and fake news. Um, so I think that we're engaged in uh, a mutually beneficial form of epistemic dependence, um, not just with experts generally, but also with journalists. I think that it's fair to say that journalists provide us with reliable information, usually reliable information about the world, occasional mm-hmm. errors, are part of the process, but generally, um, and I think that having access access to this information facilitates the pursuit of our individual interests so the, I think that the kind of most obvious example of this uh, would would be political interests, so um, we um, of course. Uh, want to know what political parties propose as political measures in order to kind of make up our mind to decide for which party we're going to vote. We also want to know what the current government is doing to decide, for instance, if we should protest uh, protest certain measures that uh, the current government is proposing. And we very often rely on journalists to provide us with this information. Now, if these claims um, are are plausible, what's the wrong um, in fake news on my account, or at least a wrong in fake news in the later part of the of the presentation, I'm going to consider a different kind of wrong. Uh, But I think one wrong in fake news is that uh, originators of fake news knowingly undermine the expertise of journalists. So they give us reason to stop relying on the expertise of journalists or at least to accept the epistemic burden of verifying the true value of their claim. So the thought here is that if you're a social media user that uh, uses Facebook daily, and then you learn that a lot of the information on which, sorry, to which you are exposed on Facebook uh, is unreliable, then you kind of have reasons uh, to not take the information to which you're exposed at face value. And you also have reasons to maybe do more research to kind of accept an epistemic burden Um, of uh, doing research to verify, uh, to inquire into the true value of these claims. So how do uh, originators of fake news manage to do that, to kind of impose on us this epistemic burden? Um, I think that they do so by faking the expertise of journalists as kind of uh, one one dimension, or let's say one, yeah, one one element of my of my framework is that I'm I'm reluctant to just portray originators of fake news as liars. They're often just portrayed as liars. I think that the kind of lie in which um, originators of fake news are, are the kind of lies in which they engage is a bit more specific. Um, so, I think that um, diffusing fake news can generally be conceived as a kind of intellectual imposture. So, uh, someone who creates uh, fake news deliberately create fake news and deliberately diffuse fake news uh, is pretending that he or she or an organization, uh, it is trying to kind of fulfill, it's pretending that it's trying to fulfill the kind of traditional function of journalism, but the truth is that the the whole time all along, they have no real intention of doing so. The intention that they have is to foster um, their, their political or commercial goals by through deceptive means. Um, and I think that uh, if, if this is plausible and we can say that originators of fake news show disregard for our basic interest in engaging in a mutually beneficial form of epistemic dependence with journalists, uh, and that the prohibition of this equal fake news protects our basic interest in engaging in this mutually beneficial form of epistemic dependence against this form of um, disregard. So that's kind of the main trust. Um, of, of the argument that I'm trying to build. Uh, but I, as I've mentioned, um, I think that, um, I mean, I think that there are uh, different kinds of objections that can be directed against this, this argument. I'm not, tr- I'm not gonna try to anticipate all uh, the objections you might have. I think that's, that's kind of the function of Q and A's. Uh, but one, of, um, one objection I, that I consider to be um, especially important is what I call the free speech objection. So basically, in the rest of the presentation, what I'm going to try to do is to uh, present this objection as I conceive of it and then uh, sketch a response to it. So uh, what's the free speech objections against um, legal prohibitions, against misinformation and fake news? Well, um, as I conceive of it, the objection goes like this. So even if Legal prohibitions create desirable social results. Even if it's true to claim, um, as, as I've just did, that uh, they may allow, uh, allow us to kind of safeguard the social division of epistemic labor, uh, they're still incompatible with our individual rights, and more specifically with our individual right to free speech. So I conceive of this objection um, as a deontological objection to. Uh, kind of consequentialist forms of reasoning. So the idea here is that the protection of individuals' rights uh, trumps the promotion of society's epistemic welfare. In fact, that the protection of individual rights trumps the promotion of society's uh, welfare, period. So um, one uh, philosopher that I think expresses this um, thought this quite nicely, it's, not the, it's the first time I quote Scanlon in this presentation, it's not going to be the last one, I think it's, he's an important thinker to engage with when one is interested in, in freedom of expression. So Scanlon writes in uh, a 1978 uh, article titled, um, "Freedom." I think, Freedom of Speech and Categories of Expression. Rights appear to be something we can reason about, and this reasoning process does not appear to be merely a calculation of uh, consequences. Um, so the idea basically is that um, you know, even if if we manage to promote society's epistemic welfare, it's possible that that uh, individual has something like a trump card uh, against the kind of measures that uh, I'm, I'm considering today, um, and that because such measures would infringe on their individual rights, uh, then uh, we should not enact them. So uh, that's that's the objection as I conceive of it. But I I, I want to say a bit more about the objection. I think that the objection is motivated by considering. Uh, the interests of two kinds of individuals. Um, So I think first, the the objection is motivated by consideration of the interests of speakers. I think that the thought behind um, the objection is that individuals who wittingly or unwittingly diffuse fake news uh, are pursuing legitimate interest. Um, So of course, I I mention wittingly or unwittingly because uh, I mean, you you know this, but I'm going to clarify it anyway. Uh, the way a fake news article usually spread in social media is that it's going to be designed by people who are conscious of what they're doing, or kind of deliberately, um, uh, you know, deceiving the public either for for political or commercial means. But of course, um, uh, a fake news article is going to spread better if people just believe its content and kind of unintentionally. Uh, Share it. I mean, intentionally share it, uh, but share it without knowing that the claims that it contends are false or or misleading. So I think that that's one kind of consideration that motivates the objection. Um, What kind of interest of speakers, precisely? I can think of two. Um, I think that um, speakers have a legitimate interest in self-expression, individuals have an interest in sharing their understanding of themselves uh, and of the world. And I also think, and, and we don't speak uh, about that as often, but I, I do think that it's important in social media. Uh, I think that speakers have a legitimate interest in freely associating with others and that promoting specific content in social media facilitates facilitates association with like-minded individuals. So by sharing a specific kind of content, uh, you're kind of defining your, your identity in social media and then the people who share your worldview can decide to associate. So that's one kind of interest that I think, a consideration of one kind of interest that are behind the objection. Um, But another kind of interest that I think motivate the objection is a consideration for the interests of audiences. And I'm actually going to spend a lot of time discussing this today, um, because it's been been quite important in the philosophical literature um, that focuses on free speech. So I, th- I think the thought is the following. Democratic citizens have a fundamental interest in being treated as autonomous agents by their governments. The first time that I mentioned autonomy um, in, in the content of the presentation. Again, it's not going to be the last time. Uh, I think that the thought uh, related to this is the thought that laws that aim to protect the mental, the mental environment of citizens against deceptive speech or other kinds of speech, for instance, hate speech, a lot of law school literature, focus on hate speech, such kind of prohibitions restrictions of speech do not meet this autonomy requirement, uh, for they imply that citizens are kind of unable to decide what to believe by relying on their own cognitive resources, Uh, i.e. that audiences um, are not composed of what we can call autonomous rational agents. Um, So um, here's um, one philosopher, as I mentioned, uh, Scanlon, that I can associate with these kinds of consideration. Um, it's, it's interesting bit because um, there's not a lot of literature right now, of course, on, on, I mean, there's a growing body of literature on fake news, but there's not a lot of literature on the relationship between free speech and fake news as a kind of deceptive speech. So what I'm trying to do here is kind of dig in a kind of very important contribution to the philosophical literature on free speech and kind of apply it. Um, to the case of, of misinformation by kind of imagining what, uh, given what these philosophers wrote, what they would probably claim uh, with regards to the, the French proposition. So Scanlon uh, wrote in an um, um, early article on freedom of expression that he published in 1971 there are certain harms which, although they would not occur but for certain acts of expression, nonetheless cannot be taken as part of a justification for legal restriction on these acts. And these arms are, A, harms to certain individuals which consist in their coming to have false beliefs as a result of those acts of expression. And bear with me um, uh, for the second part of the quote, please. Um, These arms are also harmful consequences of acts performed as a result of those acts of expression where the connection between the acts of expression and the subsequent harmful acts consists merely in the fact that the act of expression led the agents uh, to believe. Um, so uh, I think that um, extrapolating kind of from these consideration, um, there's um, you know, a reason to believe that Scannon would be skeptical with regards to uh, legal prohibitions against misinformation, uh, because I think that such prohibitions are uh, largely motivated by the worry that misinformation is gonna lead uh, the citizenry to form false beliefs. And here Scannon is telling us this kind of worry, this worry that uh, part of the citizenry is gonna come to hold false belief is not sufficient to uh, motivate a law, a legal restriction on free speech more, uh, more precisely. So, so goes what I call um, the, the free speech uh, objection, as you're probably realizing right now, I'm kind of building myself against the argument that I've presented in the first part. And what I want to do in the rest of the presentation, in the third part um, of uh, the presentation, um, is to sketch a response quite simply, uh, quite simply to um, this argument. So let's move to part three, expression and autonomy, responding to um, the free speech objection. How can we kind of philosophically respond to this uh, objection that I've just uh, considered, uh, I want to uh, start by noting that uh, there's kind of a philosophical, philosophical tendency. Sorry, I have a tendency to speak too quickly. Uh, there's kind of a philosophical tendency to consider that the fewer restrictions over speech there are, then the more autonomous citizens uh, are. And I think that this is based on a mistaken assumption that having been exposed to certain kinds a certain kind of speech, an audience is always free to decide how to react. That is what belief to form and what attitude to adopt. And I think that uh, this is a little simple. I'm inclined to think that it's overly simplistic um, and that having access to more speech does not necessarily make one more autonomous um, and that some forms of speech effectively undermine autonomy. So that's the kind of the the claim that I'm going to try to motivate and argue for in the last part um, of of the presentation. And I think that in order to do so, uh, well, it would be a good idea to kind of specify uh, what I mean by autonomy, uh, because one feature of the concept of autonomy is that uh, it's quite important and present in philosophical uh, discussion. But another feature of the concept of autonomy is it's quite slippery um, and that different authors use it in very different ways. So what I'm gonna try to do in this this third part of the presentation is not to construct an exhaustive theory uh, of autonomy that would list all of the necessary and sufficient conditions that must be met in order for us to consider that an agent is autonomous, but I do want to claim um, that autonomy includes uh, the following. So I think that autonomy includes uh, or should be conceived of as rational self government so borrowing a quote from John Chrisman, I think we can say that the capac- that autonomy is the capacity to be one 's own person to live one 's life according to reasons and motives that are taken as one 's own and not the product of manipulative or distorting external forces and Another thing that uh, I want to claim is that autonomy includes a reason responsive requirement. Sorry, that's a typo on that slide. The typo is also on the handout. Uh, it should read as reason responsive requirement. Uh, I think that an autonomous agent is in the position to appreciate the reasons that she has uh, to do certain things, considering the goals she freely sets for herself. So uh, let me stress that uh, I know that this is kind of a technical slide. Uh, And it's always good to illustrate technical considerations with examples. So here's an example that's meant to do that that I call Sarah and the Green Party. So let us say that in country X, uh, the Green Party proposes regulations that would be the most efficient to protect the environment. And that there's kind of an expert consensus on that. So if Sarah strongly desires to vote for the party that will most efficiently protect the environment, I think that she has a reason to vote for the Green Party. And I also think that forms of speech that make it more difficult for her to appreciate this reason as well as other reason that she has given the goals that she freely sets for herself, decrease her level of autonomy. So you probably see me coming. Um, the next consideration in this response is that Um, As an instance of misinformation, I think that fake news can be conceived of as a form of speech that decreases personal autonomy. How does it does so? How does it uh, do so? I think it does so by interfering with our capacity to appreciate reasons. And we could even say that they create fake reasons. So here's another example. Um, If you want to protect uh, your children's health, but you've unfortunately led um, been led to believe that vaccines are dangerous or contagious because you've encountered online a fake news article that implied uh, that they were. Um, I think that you may take yourself to have a reason uh, to not have your children vaccinated, uh, but uh, there's, in a sense at least, uh, you have reasons to actually have your children vaccinated even if you don't perceive that reason, or at least what some philosophers would call an external reason to do so. Okay, Um, the next slide is uh, a little bit of a digression, so I'm not gonna dig too deep into this. Um, This is not um, a paper in which I dig too deep into what I call the empirics of fake news or the cognitive science um, of fake news. I'm actually eager to know if you think that I should. I've done so uh, in the past. I've got an article coming up in which uh, I, I engage in a kind of analysis of empirical findings that are relevant. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna kind of close this parenthesis, but just signal that if you wanna discuss kind of the empirics, what reasons do we actually have that fake news work? And when I say work that they influence the belief formation process, I'm happy to kind of come back during, uh, to, to this question during the Q and A. Um, but um, going back to uh, the response I'm trying to sketch to the free speech objection, I think that some of you may be thinking, okay, that's an, an interesting story, uh, an, a kind of an interesting account of autonomy on which you're relying, but what was what actually your reasons to accept your conception of autonomy? There are many kind of theories of autonomy available in the philosophical literature on personal autonomy. Um, and I kind of want to stress that I think one advantage of of, of accepting um, at least some of the ideas that, that I've expressed so far is that they, they not only help us make sense of the rationale behind um, some new uh, laws that we may, our governments, or like democratic citizens may decide to implement like it has been happening in France uh, last fall, but uh, these considerations also kind of have, have help us make sense of some laws that uh, have been enacted Uh, and uh, have been in vigor for a long time, even in countries uh, which certainly like the United States cannot be accused uh, in being overly restrictive when it comes to free speech. So some of you may be aware that the US Federal Trade Commission enforces truth in advertising laws according to which uh, all advertisements must be truthful, not misleading and when appropriate by uh, backed by scientific evidence. And I think it's interesting to wonder why. Uh, why uh, do we have uh, or do Americans have uh, laws like this? Um, And one element of answer I want to give is that like fake news, false advertising, conceived as a different kind of deceptive speech kind of hinders our capacity to appreciate the reasons we have to purchase or not to purchase a good um, of our service. And I think that by doing so, uh, false advertising also decreases our autonomy. So the, the, kind of, uh, the kind of motivation behind this slide um, is, is the following. So what I'm trying to claim is um, you, you may be inclined to think that legal prohibitions against fake news are uh, incompatible with free speech. Some philosophers may be incli- inclined to think that. Um, but actually, um, if you are inclined to believe that false advertising laws are legitimate, uh, then I think that by analogy, you kind of have a reason to accept Uh, different kinds of prohibitions against, uh, or or prohibitions against, to be more precise, different kinds of uh, deceptive speech. It's just really interesting to note that um, I've presented, uh, I've I've given you a a quote by Scanlon uh, earlier Um, uh, uh, from an article, a 1971 article uh, titled A Theory of Freedom of Expression, Um, in a later article, in the 1978 article, Scanlon basically dropped and criticizes earlier framework, and one case he considers and motivates him to kind of drop the earlier, uh, um, the earlier framework is false advertising laws. He's inclined to think they're legitimate, uh, but he's inclined to think that they are incompatible with his earlier framework. I think it's just kind of interesting to have laws against false advertising in mind uh, when, when uh, we, we consider recent attempts to legislate against uh, fake news Now, Um, I've mentioned that a lot of, in fact, a lot of what I have said in in the last uh, uh, 35 minutes or so uh, focus on what I've called the interests of audience. So my focus has been the the kind of effects of uh, misinformation on the autonomy of audiences. But when I uh, presented the free speech objection, I've mentioned that I think this objection, I think a fair kind of reconstruction of this objection um, is uh, should be conceived as being motivated by concern for two different kinds of interest, um, and I've also mentioned that, uh, the, that that it was motivated by an interest, a concern over the interest of speakers, uh, and I've not said a lot about that, so I'd like to say at least a little bit. So uh, I think that it's it's fair. Uh, it's important to recognize that legal prohibitions against fake news do affect the autonomy of speakers, including those who unwittingly share fake, uh, share fake news online. Uh, so imagine that uh, the law, uh, the French law is in effect, it's working well, um, uh, let us say, and one morning you wake up, you uh, log in your Facebook account, and you find out that one article you shared yesterday or the day before has just been removed from uh, your news feed. In fact, it's been removed from the entire platform because a French judge coerced Facebook into doing so. Um, then you you may be angry. You may claim, well, well I was trying to kind of share uh, an article. This article relates to my worldview. I was trying to express myself. I genuinely believe um, that the claims contained in this article, I've done nothing wrong, and this kind of law unfairly um, penalizes me. And I think it, it's important to recognize um, uh, this objection. I think it's an interesting objection. I think that one response we, we could give to such social media users is that uh, social media platforms provide them with alternative ways of expressing their point of view. So for instance, nothing would stop such a user from writing a post, expressing anger, uh, expressing disagreement with the law, and also kind of mentioning uh, the claims, um, mentioning again the claims that were contained uh, in the, the fake news article. And I think that saying this helps to see that prohibitions against fake news are not prohibitions of specific content, um, they are prohibitions of a certain technique uh, of expression, uh, which is basically um, sharing, um, sharing articles um, that have been conceived of by uh, people that only pretended uh, to inform the public when their intention lied elsewhere. I think that, um, as I've mentioned, the main question that interests me uh, within the confine of this article, uh, at least of this paper, um, should liberal democratic states coerce social media into removing fake news from their platform? Um, I've suggested that they have reasons to do so by considering the importance of testimony uh, for the pursuit of our uh, individual interests and a phenomenon that I've called um, mutual epistemic dependence. I think that philosophers who endorse the autonomy defense of speech, free speech, it's, there's different kinds of defense of free speech and I've really focused today on the autonomy, defense of free speech, which is a defense that I think to be very influential, to be fair. I think that philosophers who endorse the autonomy, defense of free speech have reasons to accept legal regulations against deceptive speech. Um, but I want to end by stressing that I don't think that this paper alone, uh, or the consideration that, that uh, this, this presentation contains, Um, allow us to kind of give a decisive definitive answer to the question, should liberal democratic states course social media into removing fake news from their platform? Um, And um, the reason why I don't think that I'm right now in a position to give a decisive answer is that there may be different kinds of reasons against legal prohibitions um, that I do not consider in this article uh, at least. So let me give you two kinds of reasons that can play against legal prohibitions uh, that I think are interesting to discuss also. Um, so the first would be uh, claims that such laws are redundant. So that's, this has been claimed in, in France uh, because there's a law from the 19th century that kind of already prohibits um, expressing, um, you know, um, expressing or just prohibits false speech in public spaces. So some people have claimed, why is the Macron government doing that? We already have a law. It's just kind of trying to uh, you know, make political capital. Uh, we don't really need this law. And I think even more interesting um, for, uh, for uh, let's say uh, scholars, is uh, considerations that uh, are related to efficiency. So it may turn out that uh, this law, which has just been enacted kind of last fall, um, is, is, does not do, do a very good job at achieving its, its, its intended results, sorry. Uh, it may turn out that judges are not very good at identifying fake news article. Uh, it, it may uh, turn out that um, they take too long to order the removal of specific content and by the time that the social media kind of removed the content then it already spread and always, already influenced the belief formation process. I'm fairly open Considering such reasons. But what I take my work in this this article, not generally, I have like kind of a broader project on this information, but in this paper, I think that I take my work to be kind of clarifying the reasons that we may have uh, in favor or against such prohibitions. And I think if um, the conclusion that we reach at the end is we're we're gonna reject such prohibitions because they don't work very well, well, it's still interesting to know or at least to suggest that. you know the reasons we have to reject such prohibitions are not free speech uh, related so I think that this conclusion is kind of controversial enough um, to to motivate i don't know if you'll agree to kind of motivate the philosophical paper uh, so I've been speaking with uh, for, for about forty five minutes i'll I'll stop here that, that was my objective I didn't mention it uh, so that we have time for um, for discussion so uh, let me just thank you for uh, taking the time to attend. I very much look forward to uh, to discussion your your uh, your questions and having your input, so thanks.